personal views and opinions expressed by our podcast guests are their own and are not legal advice or official statements by their organizations. Hello, my name is Debbie Reynolds. They call me the Data Diva. This is the Data Diva Talks Privacy Podcast, where we discuss privacy issues with industry leaders around the world the information the businesses need to know right now. So today I'm very happy to have a special guest uh, on my show. His name is David Kruger. He's the VP of Strategy, co-inventor, co-founder of Axio Corporation. And he's also on the Forbes Technology Council. Hello. Hello. <laughs> How are you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Um, first of all, thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, something we did on short notice. Uh, you, you had, you and I have been connected on LinkedIn. Uh, we comment on posts and different things. And you had uh, called me up. And we had a meeting, and the meeting we had was mind blowing. And I said. I have to have you on the show because some of the things that you talked about were just stunning. And I think it will be great to share with the audience uh, kind of you, your experience and what you're doing with Absio. Um, so to, to get started, why don't you tell me about your journey in technology? I think it's fascinating. Well, uh, my background is not actually uh, in, in IT. I didn't get into the IT world full time, I guess you would say, uh, uh, until about 1999. Prior to that, I had been uh, in process and transportation safety, but that, that had a, uh, a software development uh, um, uh, aspect to it because I, you know, I, I wrote software. Uh, I, I ran teams of developers that made software that we needed to do to do, you know, uh, uh, process safety for, you know, uh, big chemical companies, refineries and things like that. We, you know, we were in charge of keeping things from blowing up. Right. So there's a <laughs> lot of uh, a lot of engineering works that, that goes into that. So I'd always been dabbling in software. But in 1999, I, I got into it full time uh, with my uh, twin brother. He had asked me to come and help him do a, a uh, an early Internet startup, uh, which is actually still around. It started off as construction news and now as a company called I Square Foot that delivers uh, um, construction plans and things like that to commercial uh, general contractors over the uh, over the internet. Uh, we had started up another couple of companies and sold them. Uh, and in two thousand and eight, uh, we we wanted to you know we, we wanted to, to to work the cybersecurity issue because we saw it as an issue that was not uh, uh, going to go away. Uh, and that uh, that company uh, eventually became Axio Corporation, where I work now. Excellent, excellent. Um, let's see. So I don't know. I have so many questions I want to ask you. Uh, I guess let's talk about the problem of data sharing and data leaking. So the the problem, as I see it, is that people's data is being used for all different types of purposes. Uh, there's data leakage or there's data security issues with how that data is either being maintained or how it's being transferred around. And this is, you know, to me is the problem du jour. Like how do we best protect the data of individuals that we have? And I feel like 
the conversation we had, you had some great answers uh, to that. Uh, so why don't you tell me a little bit about, about your thought about this whole thing about protecting people's data? Well, let me uh, start back with, with the sort of the, the, the safety issue, because this is this is actually safety uh, uh, is actually safety thinking or safety engineering thinking is actually how we came up with the technology. And um, so, you know, we, we've kind of come to understand that data, uh, it, it's if it's either, you know, gets in the wrong hands uh, or if it's used in a way that, the, you know, whoever um, uh, uh, sort of is the steward of that data doesn't, in, you know, doesn't intend in privacy. It's, you know, your personal information for a company. It's their corporate information. Um, we started with the concept that, uh, that, that information is different, that, that, that you have two separate components, right? Digitized information is, is a physical thing that has the potential to be hazardous. And when I say physical, uh, uh, people kind of collapse information and digitize information to the same thing, but they're not, right? You're, when you digitize information, you're turning into a, a pattern of, of uh, ones and zeros that are, that are expressed either in magnetic particles or, or, or some kind of electromagnetic radiation, light, you know, radio. They're, they're, those things are the medium. They're the physical medium right, uh, uh, for that information, but the information separate. So if you send me an email, the information is what the words mean in my head. The digitized information is the physical way that they're stored and transported. And the way you control a thing that's a, a, a hazard is you control its physicality, its physical nature. So what we realized when we started thinking about uh, the problem this way is that you go all the way back to the early 50s at Bell Labs where the first uh, human usable information was digitized. It was put on tape. They could come back to that tape. They could, you know, they could find a file. They could open it up, alter it, reuse it, save it again, and so forth. Um, and that's all the controls they had on the data. The only controls that were on the data, uh, on the physical stuff, right, uh, was a, a, a metadata that said, hey, this is my name and this is where I'm located, so you can come back and find it. The problem with that is, is that when software makes data that way, it's completely uncontrollable once it's shared, right? So if you send me an email, uh, let's say it's got uh, an attachment on it uh, and it says, hey, uh, David, don't share this with anybody else. This is private information. Do you actually have any way to enforce that, right? You're, 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 you're having to trust me that I'm not going to do something with your data uh, that, uh, that you don't want to. So, so very simply in a nutshell, what we did is we figured out how to cryptographically bind additional controls to the physical data objects. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, metadata. Uh, metadata is kind of the reason why we have jobs, I guess. <laughs> yes. Uh, metadata is so, so interesting. So for people who don't un understand, I hope people understand what metadata is. People call it data about data. So it is that tangential data that is stored with the information that may not be readily apparent on the face of the information. So, uh, and this, this becomes an issue also with images. So when you're taking photographs and things like that, it's collecting metadata about that photograph, like where it was taken, um, you know, maybe even the camera that it was taken on, different things like that. So uh, those things are very telling. And for people 
who can extract that information, they, they can glean a lot of insights from it. Yeah, so they can, and see that that information uh, that information is a, is basically available to anybody who gets that that data object, right? If they got it, they not only have the information, they have the metadata about the information, right? So that's and that, I mean, if you if you want to look at what's the what is the root cause of these sort of privacy and cybersecurity failures that we're we're currently dealing with, if you if you kind of um, uh, take it down to its root cause. There's a thing safety people do, right? What's the root cause problem? It's because software makes data that's uncontrollable once it's shared. You know, uh, think if it's a if it's a cybersecurity problem, as long as you can get possession of that data object, as long as you can go in on somebody else's machine and make a copy of it, right, and exfiltrate it to your machine, you can open up and do whatever you want to with it. You can you can. You can alter it. You can send it to anybody in the world. Those people can alter it or send it to anybody in the world. You know, and that's what they call it a data breach. The, the, the copies of the data get out and they're uncontrollable by the person who originally made the data. Same thing for privacy, uh, but not necessarily in the context of, um, of a of cybersecurity, of a data breach. But a lot of our privacy issues are around uh, uh, data being used in ways that we didn't intend for it to be used. Right. Right. So both of those are, are manifestation of the inability to be able to control the use of data when it's on somebody else's device. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And then I don't know. I always think of, you know, uh, the analogy I, I use about cybersecurity is like people think of it like it's a castle. Right, so there's a castle. We're gonna defend the perimeter and hope that no one gets in, but it doesn't take into account that maybe the danger is already inside the gates. And then once people are inside the gates, there are things that they can do with data or information that is, like you said, it's uncontrollable. So, you know, trying to find ways to protect the data in a way that it makes it useless for someone who isn't authorized to use it, I think is really important. Uh, so tell me a little bit about um, about what you do that helps that that solves that problem. Okay, so uh, uh, our first customer, uh, and this is going to go exactly to the point you were just making, uh, was the uh, was the U.S. Army intelligence, right? That they 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 had us use the technology. Uh, I'll go back a little bit more history. We we had sold this other software company. And we did a couple of years of stealth engineering to see if this whole concept of making data controllable was even possible. And our first customer was U.S. Army Intelligence, where they wanted us to build a, 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 a new a secure tactical battlefield communication systems. The, the sort of the use case was um, assume that the system is already compromised, that bad guys are already in our network. They've already got stuff on our devices. Uh, our, our users have already been socially engineered, right? Their, their credentials are compromised. Assume that that is all already true and now keep that data secure. And, and because we had coalition partners back at the time, you know, we had people that were handling the data uh, along with the U.S. military that we couldn't exactly do a, a great job of vetting them, right? Making sure that they were good guys, but we had to share the data with them anyway. We had to, the, the, they had to have a way to be able to 
uh, actually uh, change people's access to data and revoke their credentials, even if that data was on 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 some you know on their devices, not ours, or was on their network, not ours. Right. So that was sort of the the, the basic use case, and uh, uh, that's that's sort of inside out from defense and depth. The thing that you're talking about, the castle, it is official U.S. Uh, government cybersecurity policy. Uh, um, um, policy and it's called defense in depth, right? You, you, you treat it just like a, a castle with layers of defense and you hope you keep the bad guys from getting to the defenseless data. Well, we just approached the, the, uh, the problem from the other end. Why should the data be defenseless? Why shouldn't the data essentially be able to defend itself? Why shouldn't the data uh, tell the software, this is how you can use me or where you can use me or on what devices you can use me or, or, or how long you can use me. And you can only use me for these purposes. Why shouldn't the data dictate that? And that's, that was sort of a, from the, you know, a, a completely opposite approach of the defense in depth. Now, that doesn't mean that defense in depth isn't needed. It just means that it's not sufficient by itself to protect our data and the news, you know, basically proves that point every day. Right. So, so now there, there's a big issue around the world as it relates to data privacy regulations about third party data transfer. So we're seeing big companies like Apple and Google try to shift some of their third party data risk to third parties where they're limiting the data that they're giving to third parties, especially people who are doing marketing. And then they're asking those third parties to basically have a, a first party consensual relationship with the customer. So asking a third party that would not have otherwise had to ask the customer for consent in the past would have to do it now. And I think a lot of that is because of the, you know, a big feature in many of the data regulations around the world says that, you know, uh, the first party data holder or the data controller has a responsibility about what happens to data that they give to third parties. And third parties also have some skin in the game in that regard. So this third party data transfer issue is not going to go away because almost every company I feel like has to have some third party relationship, right? Where there's, you know, there may be something that you can't do in your company that you need a third party to help you with. And then you may get tangled in these data privacy regulations. So tell me about how your tool or, or the, the process that you go through would, would help a company that is trying to shore up their third-party data transfer mechanisms? Well, okay, a couple, couple of different use cases here. Uh, first of all, uh, if you just look at it from, you know, whether it's GDPR or CCPA, uh, if you look at it, uh, uh, the, the first-party company has a, has a duty of care to make sure that that data is, is, uh, is, is kept private, that it's not breached. Right. So, the, the, you know, we accomplish that simply by, you know, the, the, uh, the uh, we enable software to encrypt the data from the moment it's created. And it's never decrypted again, except momentarily when it, it has to be used. Right. Unless you're doing a thing called homomorphic encryption, you have to decrypt the data in order to be able to process it. 
So, but, but then every time it's, it, when the use is done, it's re-encrypted with a new key. So that's just a native part of, the, of, uh, of these uh, software tools. The, the liability comes in when you have to, to take that uh, data and share it with somebody else, right? And, and at that point in time, if you've got to transfer that data to somebody, in order to defray your own liability, you need to be able to prove that when you transported it to them, uh, it was encrypted and they decrypted it on their side if they're going to do that, right? So contractually, uh, if that data gets breached and you don't have a, 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 a track record of, uh, of it was always encrypted when it was us and we handed it off and they decrypted it on their side, uh, which our, our tools enable, uh, then, um, uh, then there's always, there can be this kind of finger pointing thing. We had this breach where the data actually come from. And that's really hard to tell, by the way. Uh, because if the data is identical, again, the way data works is that it's transported by making a copy, right? So you've got identical copies in the, in the first party and an identical copy in the third, in the, at the third party. There's really no way to tell where the data was breached from, right? Uh, not, not with any, any accuracy. Well, this is one way that a company could say, we handed this data to you uh, off, uh, you decrypted it on your side, and, and on our side, it was always secure. The other way, which I think is probably going to begin to become more common, is that uh, people who have to, to uh, um, uh, hand off data to other people are going to begin to, to start to figure out how can we work on this data jointly, right? How can we kind of keep this data in a place where we can both secure it and we can both control it? Right. So uh, I think in, in the long term, that's probably a better solution for for privacy, because then you, you, you never have the data, whether it's in your hands or my hands, so to speak, uh, that's not secure and its use is not controlled. So that's a that's a long term thing. But I, I think we're going to see more and more, uh, uh, especially the larger companies saying, let's cooperate in this on this data. Uh, let's just not throw it over a wall and hope nothing bad happens to it, if that makes sense. Right. So you're, um, what you're doing is you're protecting the data, whether it stays in place or whether it travels someplace else, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Because, we, because the controls are, are bound to the data, right? The, 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 the controls go wherever the data goes. So the security goes with it and the controls go with it because, you know, it becomes part of the data. Yeah. So let's say I transfer data to a third party. Um, I decide that maybe down the line, I no longer want to share that data. What, what do I do? Well, if you've just transferred the data to them, you've just given them copies and you're, you're, you don't have any, any further control of it, all you can do is hope that they do what they're supposed to. You don't have any control over that or you don't have any visibility of that. On the other hand, uh, if they are, uh, if they too, if your recipient company is is using this type of technology for for automated data security and the ability to control its use, right? Then you know you can agree upon rules that go with your data when you transfer to them, right? So control is maintained. Your uh, Basically, think of it like this, Debbie. If, if you have a contractual uh, uh, arrangement with somebody, the terms of that contract can become part of the data. You can use it for these things, these the, uh, purposes that we've agreed upon and put into a contract. 
you can use it for this long, you can use it in this way, but not this way. You can actually embody those rules in the data itself so that the people that are using that can read, you know, the software rather that's, that's using that data can read those rules and obey them. All of this becomes possible when you start to think of data as a physical thing that you can control. Right. So you're, you were telling me that in, in that situation, I would be able to say down the line, okay, I want to stop sharing data with these people. And then I can do that. Well, sure. You, you, you can do it because if you're, if it's your data, you've given it to somebody else uh, that's got your rules in it. Right. Uh, uh, we know where that data is. And then we can issue, you know, you can issue a command that the next time, uh, that that software goes online, right? Uh, that, that somebody, that software uh, that's, that's warehousing that data or processing that data goes online, you can send a, co a command that just says, uh, revoke the encryption keys, right? So that, that data is, the, 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 the data object is still in their possession, but the data is unusable because there's no key for it. Right. The, I think the unusability is a really key component, right? Because if someone, let's say someone, uh, breached uh, an organization and they breached data in this way, uh, they wouldn't be able to have use of it, correct? That's correct. I mean, it's, it's, the, it's, it's not the physical data object that we're trying to protect. It's the information, right? And if they, if they, if they, if they get the object, but they can't get the information, do we care if they have the object? Right. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, so recently, in the recent years and months, uh, there has been, well, actually last year, there was an invalidation of the Privacy Shield um, framework, which is a data transfer framework between the U.S. and the EU, um, and also the Swiss-U.S. Privacy Shield shortly after that was also um also invalidated. So the the reason or the 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 reason behind part of the invalidation is that um, you know those countries had deemed that the the U.S. didn't have what they considered an adequate level of protection of data for uh, data of European and Swiss citizens that came over to the U.S. And so there's been this huge you know, issue now internationally that's trying to get sorted out right now about how how and when and if these data transfers can start again. Um, a lot of companies are uh, relying very heavily on standard contract clauses, which are just paper promises, right, about what you do with the data. And and part of part of the discussion that I'm having with people or people are having is about how encryption can help in these situations where, um, you know, one, one of the biggest sticking points in this invalidation was that um, because of our national laws here, the data in, in the U.S. are held by a U.S. company, even if, even if it's out, out of the U.S., can be taken for law enforcement purposes. And so there are many people in Europe uh, who are thinking that maybe you know, first of all, if they don't have to transfer the data, they don't want to. If they have to transfer the data, they'll either transfer kind of the smallest amount necessary. And then we have a faction of people who say, let's do a transfer, but let me hold the keys 
to the encrypted data in the EU or in Switzerland. What are your thoughts about that? Well, no, oh, there's a there, there's a there's a ton here. So uh, uh, back up and, and tell a little bit about uh, uh, what our underlying technology is and does. It's, it's called uh, software defined distributed key cryptography, right? It's a it's a it's a new type of cryptography. It uses standard uh, FIPS compliant uh, cryptography cryptography uh, um, uh, protocols, but the the way that we manage the keys is a little bit different. So. In our, our architecture, the keys can be wherever they need to be. So if you need, you know, the, the, the data to be warehoused in the, uh, in the States and the keys to be, you know, uh, um, held in France, that's, that's entirely possible. The, the, the software developer can put the keys wherever they, they need to put. So that, that can solve that use case. Uh, the other things, though, that are possible because you can, you know, you can put any kind of control metadata uh, uh, and bind it to the the, the, the the information to the data that you want to. Uh, if, a, if a company in, in say, um, well, we don't pick a European uh, country, said, uh, um, we're going to let you use this data, uh, but we're, we're going to require that that, that data um, not travel outside of your corporate servers, right? It only, only you can have access to this data. Well, the, the IP addresses of those corporate servers are, are, are known information, right? They're, they're, they're not a mystery. The, the, the corporation that's the recipient of the data, know, it, it knows what its uh, uh, server uh, IP address ranges are, right? Um, wherever that's stored, could be in their in place, could be up in, in, in Azure or AWS. Those are, those are knowable facts. So you can actually say, we're going to transfer this data to you. We're even going to let you keep the encryption keys, but we're going to, to bind uh, data to this uh, metadata to this data that says this information will only decrypt on your servers. Right. So they can use it. They can transfer it. But, but it's going to be transferred, encrypted, and it will only decrypt on their known uh, uh, physical or virtual servers. So that way you can transfer the data. Know that it's encrypted, and except when it, you know, it has to be decrypted for use, and know that if it's breached, right, it's not going to decrypt for somebody who breaches it, who's trying to open that data up on a device that doesn't have the correct range of IP addresses. Yeah. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So let's take it a bit further. This was stunning when we talked about, uh, which was. I love your company example, but give me an example where it's talking about geographical lo location in terms of limiting the, the use to a geographical location. Well, yeah, any way that you can describe, again, geographical information is just metadata. So there's a couple of different ways to do that. You know, one of them is just GPS data. Say, before I decrypt, you, you have to send me a GPS feed, right, that says, um, this is where I am. And again, that's a known universe. You can, you know, say that uh, I'm only going to decrypt in the United States. So that's a, that's you can get that information from GPS. And everything in the world's got an IP addresses, and IP addresses are tied to a particular geography, right? So you can say this is only going to decrypt in, uh, in, in you, you know, in the United States. Let's say if it's a if it's a company uh, that's got uh, trade secrets. Right. And, and they only want this information. One of their basic controls is this information uh, or, or it has military value. This information is only going to decrypt in the continental United States. That's an enforceable control that you can bind to the data. 
using the Apsio technology, right? So um, uh, you can control the geography. You can also control time. You know, devices have clocks, right? You can make a call to, uh, uh, to a, an external clock and say, you can have this information for the next two hours. And after that, it's going to expire. And the, the software will then, you know, use our technology, using our software tools, will then delete the key and then delete the information because you only need it for the next couple of hours. Well, I mean, stop and think about that from a privacy perspective. How much information do we give to people uh, that they actually only need for a short period of time? Right. Right. Uh, what if we can put a clock on that says you need this for the next day and you can have it for the next day, but after that's going to go away. Wow. That kind of takes the opportunity off the table for them to do something with your data that you don't want them to do. Right. Yes. That's very mission impossible. I like it. Yeah. (laughs) Hear hear that clock ticking and at the end of it, boom, it's gone. (laughs) Mr. Phelps, you have five minutes to use this data, you know? Yeah, you have to add the smoke and the sound effects. I'll be yeah. cool. <laughs> the marketing department about that. Yeah. <laughs> so what what is it that people let's see, what's the best way for me to put this? What is the question that people aren't asking that they should be asking right now? I, I think that there's there's sort of two two big questions, right? Um well, first is actually just, a, you know, again, it's just education. People have to get the, their heads wrapped around the fact that, that data is actually controllable, that their information is actually something that they can control, even when it's on somebody else's uh, uh, computer, right, or, or laptop or, or, or tablet or phone. They have to get themselves wrapped around it uh, as possible. Uh, once they get that in their heads, that it's controllable, Right. Then the, the, the next question is, if they're if they're using a piece of software uh, or a social media platform or an application at work uh, or something they downloaded out of an app store, uh, begin to ask themselves the question, um, why am I using or why, more importantly, why am I paying for software that puts my data or my customers data at risk? when I don't have to, right? So what we're, we're kind of trying to foment a, a, a little bit of a revolution and maybe a little bit of a rebellion as well that just says, you, you know, hey, it's my data, it's my rules, right? Uh, and we're just trying to, to get people's uh, heads wrapped around that that's possible and that they should really begin to think that way from a privacy and security perspective. Why am I using software that puts my data at risk? Right, right. And then, too, I think, to me, this is going towards, in the future, people having their data, storing it like a bank for themselves. And then they get to choose what they share and what they don't share. And then they can revoke consent if they need to. Yeah, no, at that point in time, it's an interesting legal question because data is not really, it's not really, we say it's, it's my data right now, but it's really not because you can't, you can't own something you can't control. On the other hand, if you can control it, you genuinely own it. And if your data has commercial value and you can control it, then you can charge for it. Interesting. Yes, yes. So then, right. So then you're 
the idea of control then goes to almost like a property right oh, oh, oh yeah i mean at that point in time if you can control it and it becomes a, i mean you, you've got this huge you know corpus of law around uh, ownership of tangible and intangible property right and the information that we put on a computer is both the tangible portion of it is that physical portion that we control and of course you have the the, the information component you know that's that that is separate from that right so uh, uh there's a there's a ton of law uh, around uh, uh, property usage and rights. You know, I can, I'm not going to give you my data, but you can lease it. It's only a conversation that's possible if you can um, control the use of your property and you can evict people from your lease, right, that aren't doing what they're supposed to. <laughs> right, so that, that right now we've, we've had this long struggle with trying to figure out what a harm standard is, and that's very, very difficult to qualify and quantify. Right. And that's, you know, that harm standard, we've been trying to develop it since the dawn of the Internet. And we haven't progressed as far as we'd like to. But if you move that over into the realm of, realm of I lent you my information for a specific use. Now you're done with it and I can take it back. Or I lent you for a specific use. We have a contract for that and you misused it. That, then, then that's a then that becomes a, a, a property matter, and we have a huge body of law around that. So it, it, it changes that it changes the commercial equation. My data, my rules. You want my data? Pay me, and it and it changes how you uh, can pursue redress for people who do things with your data that you did not want them to do, that you did not permit them to do. Yeah. The thing I like about what you're talking about is that it allows you to prevent the harm, right? Prevent some of the harms to begin with. So then you don't have to even, uh, you know, be so tied up into the contract or the, the redress part after the fact, because we know that when data is breached uh, of individuals, the harm can be catastrophic, right? Yeah, and almost immediately, immediate. So it's not something where you can, you know, not everyone can pay a lawyer to go to court, you know, for years and years to try to fight cases about, you know, their identity and stuff like that. So I think that this is a great uh, way to try to minimize that harm up front. What are your thoughts? Well, I, I think so. I mean, if you, again, you go back to the, 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 the if the, if the root cause of the problems that we have with digital privacy and, and digital security, right, uh, uh, are all kind of generated by the fact that the data is uncontrollable. If you can control it from the moment it is created, secure it and, can, and keep it under control, then there's just a whole lot of the problems that we have now that, that, that begin to go away. You know, they just begin to go away. And, and frankly, uh, uh, I know this is sort of a self-serving statement, but frankly, uh, when we look out at the, the privacy and the, the cybersecurity landscape, we can't figure out how to solve any of these problems uh, without getting the data under control. You know, we, we, perimeter security is, you know, defense in depth has its place, but it's not enough. If we don't we don't get the data under control and, and have a way to exercise control, exercise ownership and things like that. Frankly, I don't know how we solve the problems. Right. I agree with that. I agree with that. 
Um, so, so if it was the world, um, if it was the world according to David, right, and we did everything that you say, uh, what would be your wish for privacy, either whether it be technology, law, or anything? What what was your wish? I would like for this. Uh, we we have this little phrase we use. Uh, I would like this to become real. My data, my rules. That that's what I would like for it to be uh, have to have real force and effect in the world because I think it would solve a lot of big big problems. Yeah, that's a great. That's wonderful. I love that. Uh, it's true. I think a lot of people feel like they don't have any control. They don't know where their data is or it's being used. A lot of times they, you, you know, I I I coined the phrase uh, data purpose jacking where yeah. data is taken for one reason and then over time, you know, the whatever uh, service that you're using, they're changing their features and their functionality and eventually they're changing their terms of service and how they're using the data. So they're really changing how your, your data is being used just incrementally. Well, yeah, the tragedy of that, the tragedy of that, Debbie, is that there is information that, that really... We don't want people to not feel that they can trust the people that they're sharing their data with because that there's bad things that happen. For I'll give you I'll give you one real quick example. Uh, I'm a cancer survivor. I want my medical data to be you know to be to be used to to have big data analytics run against it and stuff like that because uh, you know uh, we have a familial history of the same kind of cancer and I don't want other people to get this I don't want my kids and grandkids to worry about it. I want this to go into the you know the research data uh, for for this particular kind of cancer right but I also want to know that that data can't not won't not because of a contract but can't get used for something other than you know, cancer research for that in, in this example. So if you if you if you don't have ways to have enforceable uh, control of your data, then the ten, people tend to uh, to not trust the people that they're giving data to. They tend to hold data back, and and that's not a good thing. We're all a lot better off if the use of our data is known and controllable, so that we can actually share stuff that has real benefit, that has real merit, and do it and not worry about it. Yeah, I think when people have trust, they don't have a problem in sharing, right? Because they know that the data is being used for the purpose they say it is, and it's being done in a transparent fashion. So I think we need, you know, bringing technologies to the market that that engender trust, I think is critical. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. Otherwise, if you don't trust people that you're sharing stuff with, you don't share stuff that should be shared to, to maximize the benefit, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, well, wow, this is amazing. I'm so glad we were able to do this. Uh, you and I had a call and I was literally I could have just hit record right then because we were talking about the same things. It was uh, fascinating. So, well, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity. <laughs> Thank you. We'll talk soon. Bye-bye.